have a uh, copy of the scriptures, I hope you do, turn that to the book of Ephesians, closer to the back than the front, pull it up on your phone, that's what you need to do, whatever, but Ephesians, we're looking in chapter 6. So it was a few years ago, maybe eight to ten years at this point, um, that I was selected, honored to be selected, to be part of a community leadership development and training program. Uh, they chose different leaders in the community, and they said, hey, we want to help you do two things. We want to help you develop in leadership and get to be an even better leader, and we want to just be able to introduce you more and more to the community so you can get to know the ins and outs, get to know the people, and so... Went and participated uh, in this for, for several months. It was a once-a-month thing. We'd spend a day together and, and receive some training. And I'll never forget one of the things that they did. They took us to um, a camp and conference center, and they did some leadership training there through some group activities and through some um, contests together as teams. And one of the things that they did, they divided us into groups of three or four, and they had three really large puzzles uh, in, in, in stacks out in the floor, and they were all the same puzzle, but there were these big pieces, and they had them bunched up sitting in the floor, and they divided us into threes or fours, and they said, all right, your team go to that one, your team go to that one, your team go to that one, and put it together with one catch. Uh, one of you's got to be blindfolded. And so somebody puts on the blindfold, they say go, we walk over to the puzzle, and we start trying to put this puzzle together, and you should have seen the most horrendous display from leaders in what leadership is. I mean, it was absolute chaos. You got a blindfolded person who's supposed to be putting the pieces together. The other two are supposed to be helping and guiding. And you got two people talking to the one person, and they don't know. They're saying, I thought you said the left. And they said, well, I did, but I meant my left and your left and her left. And their left. I mean, it's just people are getting frustrated with each other. Like, we're friends enough to know each other. And so it's like, I don't know, man. Just tell me where to put it, right? Because we're leaders. We're highly competitive. We're wanting to win. And, and we wound up with some of the weirdest-looking stuff you've ever seen. We were trying to jam puzzle pieces in where they didn't really fit. We, we had a farmhouse, as I recall, with an upside-down chimney just sitting right in the middle of the, where the front door should be. There was all kind of weird stuff going on as we tried to do these puzzles. And then the person who was doing the leadership training stopped us and said, okay, now jumble them up, and we jumbled the puzzles back up. And said, now we're going to do, do it differently, but I want you to do one thing really quick. He said, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and I want you to determine the roles on your team. Right? So somebody's going to be the leader, the planner, somebody's going to be the communicator, communicating those things to the person who's actually putting the puzzle together. Somebody's going to put the blindfold on and, and do the puzzle. And, and so really quickly amongst our team, we decided this is who we're going to be. And they said, go. And we took off. And you would be shocked how quickly we put these puzzles together. I mean, I was, I was thinking, is there a way that this could be competitive for money because we are so good at this, all right? Like, I hate that that's where my mind immediately went, but I thought, man, if ESPN could see this, they would know, right? But um, it, it was just amazing how we went from completely inept to once leadership was defined and everybody knew their roles, we were able to carry this thing out so quickly, amazingly quickly. And it's because, at least one reason I believe is this, is that leadership is, is a God-given tool that helps us determine direction. That every uh, sphere of influence that we go into in our lives, we're, we're going to experience leadership, and that leadership is given by God, and it often determines our direction. It often determines what kind of outcomes we have. Uh, you've experienced this maybe positively, maybe negatively. You've been part of a sports team, and your coach was great, and he taught you how to be better at your craft than you ever would have been without him, and you as a team were so much better than you ever thought you could be because you looked around and you went, none of us are that good, but we're winning, right, because you had a great coach. 
Or maybe you had a not great coach. Anybody ever a not great coach? You can raise your hand as long as they're not in the room. Okay. Um, had a not great coach and you're going, we got way too much talent, but there's no clear direction. He's not training us well. She's not teaching us the right way to do it. We don't know how to communicate. And so a bunch of talented individuals don't actually function like a team because there's no great leadership. It could be in a group project, maybe in your college experience or in the classroom, maybe in your work setting. You're going, hey, I've seen a great leader really take us as a program farther and me as an employee farther and, and help me and help me to flourish and move forward in my career. Or maybe you're going, hey, if I could tell you about my employer really quickly, can I get a minute? Because um, it's not great. <laughs> and you've tasted poor leadership. See, I, I'm convinced that we don't arrive at ideal outcomes apart from leadership. That God has given us relationships of leadership and those who follow leadership to be a directional tool for our lives. As we're studying the book of Ephesians, we're seeing that God has, through Jesus, completely rewired and remade us. That he has re-identified us. If you don't remember anything else from this whole how many ever week series, remember that your primary identity is no longer sinner. Your primary identity is now saint, right? That you're a saint who occasionally sins, not a sinner who just can't get away from it, and God happens to call you saint even though it doesn't really feel true, right? You are a saint. He has rewired you, re-identified you, and we're in the half of the letter now where he's telling us, hey, I've unpacked for you all the things that Jesus has done to remake you, to recreate you internally, to give you new spiritual life, and now we're in the half of the letter where he's saying, I'm telling you how to live that life out. If you'll remember in the last couple of weeks, before I missed last week with COVID, by the way, I'm good now, okay? So everybody got a negative test, got a few days between us, you should be fine, okay? Um, unless you, you know, try to get into my personal space, I may cough on purpose, but whatever, all right? But, right? But, but a couple of weeks before that, we talked, remember, about the relationships in the family. We talked about the, the husband and the leadership that the husband needs from God and the wife and the way that she follows the husband's leadership and they together complement each other walking towards Jesus. We talked about the way that they as parents then lead their children and the children are to follow. And we're going to see that Paul is next going to engage in some thought regarding another crucial relationship, one that impacts all of our lives in one way or another. Because unimpacted relationships reveal unchanged character. So Paul is saying, I'm unpacking these relationships for you because I want you to understand that if the way you interact with and treat people is not different, then you don't need to feel super confident that you've been internally changed by Jesus. But if you have been, here's how you can flesh it out. Here's how you can live in these relationships. So we talked husbands, wives. We talked children's parents. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Read a few verses. <coughs> it says... Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and with trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. Now there's a potential conflict, a potential tension you might be feeling in your gut especially depending on what translation of scripture you might be using. That first word there is he's addressing a specific group of individuals. He says bond servants in our translation, and that's a good translation, right? But another word that's often used there is slaves. And if you see that word, and you see that Paul, inspired by God's spirit, is addressing people, and what he's saying to these bond servants or these slaves is not, hey, abolish slavery, get out of it forever. You start to kind of wonder, hey, why did God not just say stop? 
In fact, I would, I would say to you that I think it probably honors God for us to have that question, for us to feel a little bit of that tension. And so that's not the key point, but I want to make sure we understand a couple of things as we're looking at this text today. First of all is this, is that God is really, really clear in Scripture that the picture of slavery that we're most familiar with here in North America and what we've seen in some of those atrocities, God is absolutely opposed to that. Read Exodus chapter 21. It's really clear, right? He has commandments against taking someone against their will and selling them and having ownership over them. It's clear there in Exodus there are commandments there that, that if a, due to a master's harsh treatment, a slave is injured, the slave is to be released. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, you see that a slave that has escaped an unjust master comes and makes his way to you and your property, then you're not to try to return him to the master. You're to give him asylum and protection. God loves people, and he has a special heart for people who are oppressed in ways that they shouldn't be, right? That's why he sends Jesus, because we were oppressed by sin, right? So this picture of slavery that we most often think of, right, God is totally against that, and we may wonder, well, then, if this picture of bond servants has a lot of similarities with it, which it does, it has a lot of similarities with that picture in many instances, also has a lot of differences. This picture of bond servants also has a lot of similarities with just our modern construct of employment, bosses, supervisors, employees, they have some differences, right? But we would wonder, why wouldn't God just shut that down? And, and I can't give you the full-on answer. I don't know for sure. I don't think anybody does. But I'll just offer to you that that doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he condones it. I have some ideas about it. We can talk about it. Check out First Timothy where he, where he says to bond servants to obey their masters and honor them in the Lord so that the word of God and so that God may not be reviled. I think historically there were, there were servant or slave revolts that rose up in times and they ended up being massacres and many, many people died and, and many people were probably turned off to the message of what those people were about, right? And so, right, God's ultimate aim is not social reform, though he cares about that. He does it through changing individuals' hearts, right? And so Paul is being used by God to speak to those who live in this bond-servant relationship where they are servants of someone who does own the rights to their employment, to their work. Right? He says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about how you interact with those who are your master or your supervisor. Right? Think about how you interact with them. And I believe what Paul is doing, I believe what God is using Paul to do is to subvert oppression and, and injustice in these settings, to subvert it one person at a time. I believe it's the spread of Christianity that really led to a lot of the dissolution of some of those injustices. But he says to him, listen, I want you to work for the person that you work for. I want you to work for your master, work for uh, the, this one who's over you in a particular way. He says, I want you to do what? He says, obey them, right? So I want you to obey them, and if it just stopped there, some of us could put a period right there and go, okay, I feel good about that. Be it my boss, my supervisor, or anyone in some sphere of, of my life that has influence authority over me and my output, if all I'm told is obey, then I can just do what they tell me to do in black and white on paper. If I've done it, I've done it, and I'm good, and I'm done. I've honored God, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I just want you to obey. He says more than that. He says how he wants us to obey. He says, bond servants, obey your masters. How? First of all, with fear and trembling. Right? This is not horror and fright. This is respectful reverent type of fear that I have for you, even if there are things in you that I see that are imperfect, which by the way, newsflash, any boss, any supervisor, any leader in your life, they have imperfections. And if you work with them long enough, you'll see some. Right? So maybe we need to offer them the grace that God offers us. 
But he's saying, listen, if, if you see these imperfections in them, you still offer them and treat them and interact with them in a reverent respect just because of the, the role that they hold in your life. We see in Romans 13 where, where God says that, that we're called to obey the authorities over us socially, civically, right? And it's because he has allowed them to be there. It's not because their leadership is perfect. It's because God is perfect in his knowledge and wisdom, and he has placed them there. He says, I want you to obey these people who are over you, the one who give you your directions and your guidance. I want you to obey them with respect, right? with fear, and with trembling. I won't dive too deep in here. I'll just toss it up and leave it to you. Do you interact with your boss, your supervisor, your district manager, your teacher in the classroom, do you interact with them in such a way that you know respect for them and who they are and the role they have in your life is in your heart? He says, give them this respect, this fear and trembling. He says, secondly, and this is where we want to zone in because the passage zones in here. It kind of mentions it more than once. He says, with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ. So be sincere from your heart in what you're doing, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. So he's setting up for us a, a paradox, right? He's showing us a, a, a contrast in a way that is going to really point into our lives if we're honest with ourselves, right? Because we as humans have the human nature that causes us to be more fixated oftentimes on how things look than how things actually are. If you're honest, there are moments in your life, there have been moments in your life when your thoughts are more consumed with how do things appear to others than how are things actually in me, right? We work so hard sometimes to prove to others we're doing it rightly, that we've done what we're supposed to do, and in reality, we could probably accomplish a whole lot more of doing things the right way if we would apply the energy we're applying to appearances to our actual output. He says, listen, don't focus more on, on what it looks like. Focus more on the heart that it flows from. Who are you really? Not do who people think you are because of the life that you're putting before them intentionally. Is there an area in our lives that we might be more prone to focus on how it appears than what it really is than in our employment, than in our daily efforts and labors? Where we're tired, we're distracted, we're worn down, we're not really enjoying this specific thing that we have to do. And we go, man, I just, I just want to make sure it looks like I'm, a, I'm working hard and I'm doing great. And I want to make sure I do an okay job, but I don't really, this is not for me. He says, don't do that. I'm hoping that maybe you're seeing light up in your own heart some proclivities that you may have to enter into a fixation on how it is. But, but let me help you out. So my wife, Jamie, at the time, Jamie Phillips... She's been to, we counted the other day, five different colleges, by the way. So I'm just saying the woman is educated, all right? She was at a conservative Christian college up in Tennessee when we met, and I would go and visit her. And this, this school had a bunch of pretty strict rules, depending on what you're used to. And one of their rules was that on Sundays at a Christian college, you were to go and, and attend and be part of a worship gathering with other believers who believe what you believe as part of this university. And I'll never forget and this is the rare instance where I didn't run this by her, so I may be in trouble later. If I am, pray for me, okay? We're going to be in a car traveling this afternoon. If you don't hear something from me in the next day or so, start looking, okay? <laughs> but I'll never forget being with her at this university, and, and I had gone for the weekend, and we woke up on Sunday morning, and I don't remember if we slept late or if we were just being lazy or, or what was going on, if we had something that we thought was more fun to do, but we decided to skip church. Man, I know. 
I know y'all are judging me right now, right? But you need to know I keep a list up here. Of, I, I'm checking it as I'm talking every week, okay? I'm just kidding. I totally don't do that at all, okay? We decided we're going to skip church. But when it comes time to go to the cafeteria on campus and get the lunch that they provide for you there, it's a good lunch, it's time to go get it. Jamie says, well, we got to change clothes. So what are you talking about? She said, we got to change clothes to go to the cafeteria. So there's a dress code at the cafeteria. She said, no, but we need to look like we went to church. <laughs> what are you talking about? We need to look like we went to church. She's like, it's not good to go into the cafeteria just wearing shorts and a T-shirt or something that you probably wouldn't have worn to church. Like, if you go in there with bedhead and your flip-flops on and your, your breath's still kicking like you didn't have a mint or brush your teeth, they're going to know you didn't go to church and you're going to be looked down upon. People are not going to be cool with that, right? And it created this system in which not just my wife but other students there would wake up, not go to church, but then try to do everything they could to appear that they were going to church. They would put on whatever their quote-unquote church clothes were, which, by the way, what in the world are church clothes? <laughs> As a dad, we've had letters sent home to our kids like, hey, for this event at school, they need to be in church clothes. I'm like, I don't know, right? Like, my son, I don't know if you've seen him. We've got a, a, a six-year-old. He wears shorts and knee-high boots. I'm like, I don't think you want me to send him up there in that, but I will, right? <laughs> and even that construct, maybe not fully, but to some degree, that construct of what I have to have on to be appropriate and, and be received into certain communities, right? It's this fixation with this is how it looks, and I have to make sure it looks how it looks regardless of whether my heart is really engaged with what it is. Is there a place in our lives, I can tell you that I don't know if there's been one in mine, where we're more prone to going, I'm just not going to fixate and care about what it really is. I'm going to care about what it looks like than in our employment, in our efforts. When there's a chance to cut a corner, <laughs> go, hey, I know this is not excellence, but I can just kind of not really have to do this and nobody's really going to know it. When there's a chance to send the email that, that just drops one line to let somebody know, hey, I, I, I looked into that file and what looking into that file really meant for you was you lifted up the cover and went, looked into it. Right? He says, listen, don't Fixate your efforts on how things appear. Focus your efforts on how things really are and the heart from which you're serving those who are in authority over you. And if you live that kind of life in today, 2023 American culture, your life will stand out. This is not New Testament what he's talking about. He says, serve under your master, not based on whether they're the perfect leader, whether you might have some knowledge they don't, whether you might have some skills they don't. Serve them based on what? He says, serve them as if you were serving Jesus himself. Right? As if it was done unto Christ and if it was done to the Lord. So the question for us, and this, this goes back to this key verse, I believe, in in this set of passages in verse 21 of chapter 5 where he said submitting to one another out of reverence to Jesus. If you'll remember, the whole idea is I don't interact with you based on what you deserve. I interact with you based on what Jesus deserves. He's saying interact with your employers, your supervisors. Treat them as you would treat Jesus and out of what he deserves if he was in that role. And so I just ask you, and it's going to be a hard question, but does the way that you speak about your work do the things that you say, are they things that you would say if you were saying them to or about Jesus himself? Right? Listen, this is not meant to be hard day. I love you. Okay? So everybody step in. We all love each other. Right? We're good. But, but it is meant to be challenging. Does, does the approach that we bring when we enter into the workplace, does it, 
Does it say that we're serving a Savior who gave his life for us? Or does it say that I'm not working that hard because the boss man is a little bit late? Never forget, I, I had gotten into a habit of running late for work. It's one of my most shameful moments, and I mean that sincerely because I take prudence. It's kind of important to me, right? And I'd gotten in the habit of running late, not super late, three, four minutes late. I had found out there was a side door I could walk into, take me straight to my cubicle at work. I could flash in with my key card, walk right in, sit down. Everybody was still kind of getting started from the day. I would oftentimes sit down, start up, have everything ready. I'd be going and working before everybody else was. And so I felt like, hey, that's all right. Let me tell you when it didn't feel good anymore. It didn't feel good when I found out that that place where I flashed my badge in at the door was linked immediately to an Excel spreadsheet, and it put my name and what time I logged in every day. Now, let me tell you how I found that out. I found it out when my new supervisor of about two weeks came over and sat down at my desk and go, hey, you're doing great, but we got to talk about something. And they opened up a sheet with my name on it, and there were so many cells on that thing that were red, meaning late, that I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. Right. I'm like, is it time for the Christmas drive? Is that what we're talking about? Because I'll just... And I remember being rightfully, right, embarrassed and rightfully just feeling like, man, I've messed this up. I've done it wrong. And just having to say, hey, that's, that's not who I need to be. That'll be different. That'll be different. That's not who I need to be. I've had multiple moments in my work life experience outside of the vocation of pastoring in the workforce and higher education with some different, I've had multiple experiences to go to a boss and go, hey, I didn't do that the right way, and I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not how I should have done that. Right? I'm not calling you out. I'm just telling you that's not what I should be about. I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? Right? Is it that our hearts so want to work for Jesus? Is it that our hearts so want other people to see Jesus that the way we engage with authority screams that to them? That the thing that's most important to me is not whether or not I get the bonus or the raise or the promotion, as important as that is, and I'm not trying to take that away, but the most important thing to me would be, do people see Jesus through my life? Because one day when I see Jesus face to face, that raise is going to be completely gone. It doesn't matter anymore. As best I can understand scripture, we're not spending dollars in eternity. right? That won't matter. But when we look at Jesus, we will feel grace and compassion and love no matter how we have failed. But I, I think it will also feel really great to look in his eyes and go, I know I tried my best to honor you. Right? Says, Listen, don't be people pleasers. And that is the place, isn't it? Where our devotion to God tends to get off track most often. Is that we decide I'm going to do it in such an order as to please a different person other than Jesus. Who are the people who would be pulling you away from being a faithful worker? Who are the people who their opinion matters so much to you that you're shifting what you're doing and how you're doing? Listen, some of you may be the employer. We're going to get to you in just a minute, but understand this. You still have authorities, at least in some sense. If you go and work jobs for other people, they get to say yes or no to you, right? And they may not be your direct boss, but they have a sense of decision that overrides your work. You can't just decide that you're going to do their work for them, right? Listen, I'm challenged by this. Does the way that we speak about this job or that job, the way, the place we draw lines on what we're willing to do and not do, we go, why? Well, he's asked me to do that, but I've already done this, this, and this, and I, just, I can't. Listen, I, I live in a real world. There, there are certain times when certain things are not made inside the set of responsibilities that were covered. Right? I get that. 
also true is that Jesus never stopped. He kept going the extra mile and extra mile and extra mile and extra mile to do all that it took to express his love for his people and to redeem. And if we're a people who are constantly slamming doors and drawing lines and saying, I'm so limited in what I'm willing to do, I'm wondering if that's reflecting a heart that's saying, this is how I work for Jesus. Just don't do it as a people pleaser. Do it from sincerity in your heart, knowing that you're really working for Jesus. If you don't hear anything else today, if you can wake up tomorrow and think of one thing, I've been praying that maybe it would be this, right? that our work, if your work is for an employer, if your work is in a classroom, whatever it is, your labor, your effort, our work is worship when it's focused on Jesus. Our work is worship when it's focused on Jesus. We can come in here and we can sing our hearts out to him, but our lives can be just as radiant and vibrant of worship if we're going, hey, Jesus, this is for you. I've known people in high and lofty roles and people down in in the roles that are starters and not really anybody's aiming to get that job who've had an attitude that very much reflected Jesus and their life were worship. They had a gladness that you couldn't touch because it was for him. You guys should have met the exterminator that I happened to bump into here in this building on Saturday. That dude loved Jesus. <laughs> Just listen, serve the Lord, love the Lord. Will we be people who wake up in the morning and decide that we work for Jesus first? We also work for that person, but that's under him. We work for Jesus first. He says that, listen, you should do this because of who Jesus is, but he also offers us something that God is so rich in grace, he doesn't have to give us He gives us a promise in verse 8. He says, if you've done this, you can do so, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Saying, so listen, it's a good thing if you have the ability, as many of these bondservants did, to work and, and to earn freedom. Many of them chose not to accept it. They chose to stay with but he says, listen, it's a good thing if you get that, but the focus is not whether you're free or whether you're still a bondservant in this fashion. It's not the deal. What you should focus on is Jesus, and you should know that there's a promise that anything that is good that you have done and produce any labor you have given for the name of Jesus, that good will be returned back to you. Now, I want us to be super careful here. <laughs> there's a lot of, of kind of Christian and christian type of circles where it's promised that if you do this, you get this. If you say this, you'll be blessed. Money will wind up. You'll get the better job. If you work for two years hard enough, you'll get two promote. whatever. This, this is not a promise of you try hard for Jesus and Jesus blesses you with exactly what you want. It's not how it works, right? If, if we're going to try hard and then be blessed with ease, I would think Jesus would be the blessed with the most ease there's ever been. He wouldn't have been on the cross, right? Because he efforted more than anyone, right? This is not... Fulfill the command, be good, try to honor your boss as you honor the Lord so that you will get good. Because guess what? What's at the end of that type of honor is still not the employer and it's still not Jesus. It's the thing that you're hoping to get. That's what's at the end. That's what's at the bottom of your heart's desire. He says, focus on the Lord, but know this as an extra that good is meant to come your way. Now listen, some of you are sitting right here right now and you're feeling what I felt when I just read this to get ready for preaching. Right, I started reading this earlier in the week, and I'm like, good has not always come my way. <laughs> I've done the right thing, and instead of being rewarded for it, uh, I felt like I was punished for it. 
I've done the honest thing. I've worked extra. I've done the stuff, and it hasn't worked out well for me. But what I can also tell you is this, is that the trajectory of my life has been that as I have tried, not perfectly, but as I've aimed my life to work as if I'm doing it for Jesus, as if I have him sitting there watching me work, and I'm saying, this is for you, Lord. As I have made that trajectory of my life as an adult, I have been blessed over and over and over and over and over again, and I've gotten to live out more and more and more of what I want to do professionally. Right? That may not be everybody's promise, but God's promise is that there is good for you. It may be good that you didn't choose. <laughs> it may be the good that you weren't wanting. You want that other good. But there is promised good for you if you would be a person who would choose to work as worship for Jesus. Because good is coming your way. Now lastly, it's the part everybody's going to love, unless you happen to be the business owner or the boss. <laughs> And all of these couples, remember he said husbands and then wives, said parents and then children. Remember verse 21 of chapter 5, it's submitting or subjecting yourselves to one another. So it's a mutual subjection to each other. It's a mutual submission. So he's going to flip the coin over and say, hey, listen, I've been talking to you if you're an employee, but make sure we hear this really quick, bosses. Make sure we hear this really quick, masters. This is what he has to say. If I can see it says this in verse 9, Masters, underline this in your heart. Masters, do the same to them. <laughs> Masters, do the same to them. And that there is no partiality with him. It's just so clear and stark to me that, that he says, Hey, if you're the person in authority, here's what I want you to do. And he doesn't give a separate set of similar but a little bit easier <laughs> requirements. He says, do the same to them. Honor them in such a way. Lead them in such a way. Bless them in such a way. You work extra hard for them so that it relieves some of the burden for them in such a way. Do that in such a way that it would be worship to Jesus. If you've ever had a supervisor or a leader like that in your life, you know what a blessing it is, right? People tripping over each other trying to work for people like that. Do the same unto them. Honor them. Lead them in such a way that Jesus is honored. And here he says why. Because you know this, that you also have a master. Right? So you can be the CEO of the biggest business in the world. There's a master over your life. <laughs> Whether you acknowledge him or not, the Bible says one day you will. You'll bow a knee and call him Lord. Right? There's a master over your life no matter who you are. He says, know that you have a master, and where is he? He's in heaven, in a place that's different and perfect, and in a place that he has perfect vision, right, in the imagery, to see everything that's going on. He's your master. You have this master, and I love this, and that this master shows no partiality. The original language here for partiality, it speaks of a lifting of the head. The idea there is of a judge who when two people would come to him in a dispute, they would be bowed down in honor before his, his holiness, the king type of thing, that the judge would, would reach down and lift the head to see who he was working with. And it's, it's the idea of no partiality. Don't lift down and lift the head up to see who it is before you decide what's the right action. Right? Treat people the way that you would treat Christ. I thought about this passage. My mind went somewhere a little bit offbeat, but you know me well enough to know that's true now. So. I went to holidays at my mama's house. <laughs> we would play football in the backyard. My two cousins, myself, 
and then our uncle would come out and, and be the all-time quarterback, right? Because the adult is not going to run and get sweaty. They're going to be the quarterback because that's why you get to be an adult, right? You get a job. When you get a job, you go, man, I got a paycheck. I'm the quarterback, right? That's how that goes, right? <laughs> My uncle would be the quarterback. One of us would be the, the offense at a time. We'd be the receiver. Two would be covering. You get four downs to try to score. And I'll never forget this guy, my uncle at the time, he, he would throw great balls to his sons. But I could be absolutely wide open. And he would throw me passes that were close enough to look like good passes, but far enough away that I couldn't catch them. And I wanted to throw things at his head. Okay, I remember being 10 years old and thinking, nothing infuriates me more than the fact that you're cheating me from beating my cousins in Mama's house football. Right? Right? And, and he did, he did it. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's not I think it happened. I'm telling you, I'm as sure as I'm sitting in this chair, it happened. Right? It, it wasn't a perception. It wasn't a, it was a, I know the dude. He wasn't wanting me to beat his boys. Right? Because he was partial to them, he gave them a, a certain level of performance. He gave them an interaction that he wouldn't give to me. And even as a young kid, right? Even over something as import, unimportant as, as backyard football, just the injustice in my heart was like, why will he not just throw me the ball, right? Can you imagine, and unfortunately some of you probably can, how it feels when an authority over you in your life chooses not to bless you, reward you, honor you, specifically because you are you. And they choose to honor and reward somebody else because they're them, not you. I don't hear anything else at all today. Hear this. Jesus is not a respecter of all the social norms and things that we tend to care about. He doesn't care about those things. He doesn't love you more based on which job you work or how up the ladder you are or how much money's in the account or what kind of car you drove here today or whatever. He doesn't care about any of that at all. He cares about you because you have a soul created in the image of God. And that's true for every person with a heartbeat on this planet. That's how Jesus loves, and he says, you honor Jesus as you lead. Lead your kids working in the yard. Some of you are like, man, I've been doing good this whole time. We've been talking about work, and then you just had to go out in the yard with your kids. Right? Lead those that you lead. Lead them with a loving, kind patience and with a lack of favoritism and partiality that says, I will love you the same. That may not mean that everybody gets the same bonus. But it does mean that I don't give a bonus to this person just because I like them better. This is the love of Jesus that he pours out his grace. Not in greater measure to you than to me or to me than to you. But he looks at people broken and in need of forgiveness and healing internally, spiritually. And he says, you have it and you have it. Would that kind of love shape the way that we effort tomorrow? This is not a hard passage to understand. It's a hard passage to apply. Right? Will that kind of love shape the way that we don't say the thing that comes to mind about the guy who just walked out of the room to the guy standing next to us? Will it shape the way that even though nobody's ever going to look or care or know if I actually did this, I'm going to do it anyway because I was expected to do it. And I have a master in heaven who sees and who I'm working for ultimately.
You want to be enjoying your job maybe a little more than you have been? Go to work tomorrow for Jesus. Right? Go to work for him first tomorrow and let your work be worship. Seek how your work and how your relationships in that workplace can honor Jesus and point other people towards him. And your work will have purpose like you didn't have a dream. And submit to one another out of reverence to Jesus. He's remade us in many ways and for many things, and this is one of them. And I'm convinced that if we live that type of life, that Philippians type of life that says, do everything without complaining or arguing. If we strive to live that kind of life, then don't live it perfectly, but live it faithfully. The world will notice. Do you want the world to see Jesus? This Jesus who loves you this well. Do you want them to see him for yourself? If you're here today, you don't know Jesus, you're going, how are you telling Jesus to me going into the office tomorrow? Me riding to the work site tomorrow? Because we here have found that Jesus is worthy of everything. (laughs) And that he doesn't make everything perfect for us in a flash, but life with him does make everything better. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're not sure if you know Jesus genuinely, you may have been raised in religion, you may have done the church thing every every Sunday that rolls. If you don't know for sure you know Jesus, come find me, please, when we're done. I'd love to talk with you. Answer any questions I can, help you in any way. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, How do we need to respond to this word? Worship is a response that expresses value. It's I've seen something and I want to respond in a way that says that thing is valuable. How do we respond? How do we worship based off of these verses? The band's going to come. We're going to have a moment to sing. I want to ask you just to let God lead your heart and how it is that maybe you tweak your life even a little bit to shine his glory to your world. Let's pray. (coughs) God, such a hard word for me, maybe because it's so clear and yet so hard for us to do, maybe because I've gotten it wrong so many times, God, I pray that you, in the person of your spirit, would grip our hearts, though. And that we would not work in horror or fright, but that we would work in fear and trembling of reverent respect of those you've placed over us. God, would you stir that in us now? God, right now, would you let us be pricked in our hearts, God, that we might experience your nearness all the more, that we might know how close you are as we strive to work for you. God, who is it in our workplace that maybe we need to go and and repent toward. Let them know that we have not in you. Would you show us? God, who is it that we're leading that we could lead differently? God, what effort can we go and make tomorrow that is different than what we've done and it's because of you? God, would you lead us in that? God, we want to be your worshipers, not just on Sundays. We want to be your worshipers, not just in doctrine and theology. We want to be your worshipers in spirit and truth and in all of the nooks and crannies of our lives. I pray you would do that in us. I pray you would lead us in how to respond. I pray you would start with me. I ask these things for your glory. Jesus, amen.